Welcome to the Citizens Report. It's 17th of April. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today in our new socially distanced studio by Citizens Party founder Craig Isherwood. How are you Craig? going Craig? Yeah, thanks. Good, good to be back Robbie, finally. That's good. Um, we, had to, we had to give Craig a break for a while and keep it to Elise and I because of the social distancing question, but we've made some adjustments here. Um, we're actually in the same room, but um, quite a distance apart. Alright, in this week's Citizens Report. We're busting out of economic suicide. And Australia needs a reconstruction finance corporation to build out of depression. Now, before we begin those topics though, I just wanna make a, a, um, a, a issue, a, an intelligence warning, if you will. Just in the last couple of days, there's been uh, an explosion of disinformation about supposedly U US authorities starting to think that the coronavirus emerged out of a lab in Wuhan. Now, I can't sit here and prove that one way or the other, but what I can tell you is the sources of information of people we regard as the usual suspects who are part of this neocon war disinformation machine that wants to get wars going, and ultimately their targets are countries like China and Russia. Um, and in this particular case, a lot of the sources of what you're hearing now about China in relation to this is a publication called the Epoch Times. And because a lot of you are sitting at home, got nothing else to do, and you're on YouTube and you're looking up the internet, etc., entirely naturally, this, is, this publication is responsible for a lot of the information going around at the moment. All I'll say is this. The Epoch Times is pure disinformation, especially with regards to coronavirus. It is the publication of the Fulon Gong movement. Now, you know, whatever Fallen Gong wants to believe, that's their business. But if you take anything they say on a medical issue seriously, you're an idiot. Fallen Gong literally believe that all medical science is evil, that no one should ever get medical treatment for anything, because medical science is how actual aliens from outer space are taking over our bodies, taking over the human race. That's what they believe. It's one of the reasons the Chinese government doesn't like them, because people who join Fallen Gong die because they don't get medical treatment. Um, they own the Epoch Times, and the Epoch Times is suddenly an authority on how the world should be looking at the details of the coronavirus. No thank you, right? At least, take, at least we can agree that we shouldn't take medical advice from such an organisation. Don't believe what they say. They're backed by the nastiest people in the United States and the United Kingdom at the moment that have always been gunning for a bigger war. The, the Citizens' Party puts the danger of world war at the very top of our list of concerns, which is why we talk about this subject. We're not here to defend China or defend Russia as much as we are to stop these neoconservative war types getting their way as they have for 20 years, right? So that's what I want to say about that. We'll do more information on that soon, but it's suddenly, we're saying, I'm saying it now because the last few days it's got very dangerous, the claims they're starting to make because they want to blame Tom Cotton, the US congressman yesterday said on Fox News that the Chinese Communist Party is to blame for every American death every American job loss, every American who's lost all their money on the stock market. That's what he actually said on Fox News. Now, if they get away with that, right, that's the sort of thinking that's going to lead us to war and we have to call it out now. All right, so that said, let's get on with what we're here to really talk about. We're busting out of economic suicide. 
Craig and I will endeavour to have a conversation here from one end of the room to the other. Um, so we'll see how we go, but I think, you know, just follow along. Um, we've said on this show before, Craig, six months suspended animation that Scott Morrison talked about is national suicide. It's nuts. Um, what we're already seeing the consequences of it. There's millions of jobs lost, even though you wouldn't know from the official unemployment figures. That alone tells you how crazy our, our, our statistics have been for decades. Unemployment figures came out yesterday saying unemployment had gone up by 0.1%. Why? Because it's based on a survey of 30,000 households. Why can't they just count them at Centrelink, for crying out loud, right? But that's the official rate, when in reality we know it could be, you know, instead of 5%, it could be 15 to 17%, something like that, right? That's already happened. Thousands of businesses have been crushed. You've got an unknown knock-on effect, which is very concerning from the delayed medical procedures, which were done with good intentions, right? But that has a knock-on effect. Um, and you've got the rollout of invasive surveillance measures that we'd never normally accept in normal times. And I'm, I'm, I would be prepared to accept some of them, perhaps, it purely if they're for the dealing with the crisis and then they're lifted afterwards. The problem is you don't have any confidence that the people who come up with this stuff would intend to make them temporary. Right, they've been pushing for these. There's been a big push on these laws for a long time. Um, there's debates raging between epidemiologists about the severity of the of the virus. So we hear those debates. There's debates raging within the medical clinic, clinicians about you know how best to treat it, etc. We can't contribute to that debate on this show. Right, we're not experts. What we can contribute to is the is is an understanding of the economy. Because the main point I want people to understand is that the decision makers in countries like Australia who've made their decisions about the pandemic, and that includes the health people, they're forced to make decisions within the constraints of the existing economy. And that, therein lies the problem, right? Because our economy is severely restrained. We've kidded ourselves for too long about what it is. We want to bust out of the constraints, right? And we, that, we want to talk about how to do that. Um, the main constraint to that I think we're all familiar with is the whole idea of flattening the curve, which is why we're in social distancing and, and staying in our homes, etc. That's premised on not, um, uh, not because it's a, it's a, it's a first-order public health measure, it's entirely premised on not overwhelming the hospitals. And that relates to why our hospitals are so vulnerable in the first place. In 1977, we had 8.1 beds per thousand. Now we've got fewer than four beds per thousand. Right? This is self-inflicted, and that's a function of where our economy's at. So I want to just illustrate this. We had a really good seminar in Sydney um, uh, last year, Craig, where Dr. Wilson Sy, the former principal researcher from APRA, who's a, who's a scientist himself, an astrophysicist, but he's looked at economics for, with, with fresh eyes. He did his own study of the Australian economy, and he presented these graphs and I want to, that I want to um, bring to people's attention now. One of the things I noticed, Robbie, is it's fascinating really, is because when reality interrupts ideology, yep. you get a fantastic change towards the better, particularly if the politicians are actually concerned about human beings. And I think you see that there's a real motivation from Morrison and for all the premiers to actually want to save lives. They don't want to be left with thousands of people dead on their watch. And that's, that's a tremendous motivation. But what we're finding is that all the policies that we've represented for 30 years yep. are now instantaneously being put on the, on the table overnight. Well, they're being, they're being far more receptive of them. I still think they don't get how much they should be putting all, like, 
putting all the effort into making those policies reality. Uh, yeah. But we can actually, I think we can achieve that. I, I think that's right, Robbie, because look, you've had 40 years of this economic rationalism, these policies that have been brought into our country by the Montpellier Society. We've made many publications about this and, and written the history of how this has come about. This is an instantaneous change. I mean, they weren't expecting this virus to do what it's doing. And now they've got to rethink, are we going to go down the same ideological lines that have destroyed the healthcare sector for the last 40 years, or are we going to make fundamental changes? And that then throws up all sorts of questions. What else do we have to throw overboard? And you've got to start with the banking system, which I'll say more of in you know, yeah, exactly. the program. Well, why don't we do this? Let's take a quick break now, Craig, and resume this discussion that you've just raised after the break. Welcome back to the Citizens Report, where we're discussing we're busting out of economic suicide. Now, just before the break, I mentioned that we had a seminar last year in Sydney where Dr. Wilson Sy came and presented some statistics on the Australian economy. And I want to I want to illust- I want to go through some of those, some of his charts, and you can see the full video on our YouTube channel, the, the two-part presentation that Dr. Sy gave. But it just illustrates where how we got to this point economically. So, if you look at the first one, Australian real GDP growth. What you see is that where there's a line in the middle that the green, um, the green uh, line drops below, those are recessions. And we haven't had any recessions for 27 and a half or now 28 years, right? Except if you look at the actual growth, despite having recessions before that period, we had higher growth. And so we've had a period of no recessions, but much smaller growth. And the question is growth in what? So that takes you to the next one. Australian production sector. This shows you what's the productive happened to the productive side of our economy. And what you see is manufacturing has gone down massively. You see agriculture has, um, instead of going up, where it's just, which frankly it should have with all the technology we've got, it's, it's gone down marginally. The only two productive things that have seemingly gone up is mining and, and construction, but mining is because we've turned ourselves into a quarry, right? We're not value adding to that. And construction, of course, relates to the, especially the last bit, relates to the housing bubble that we've been in. It's construction of unnecessary and overpriced housing. The, compar- the contrast is to the next one, Australian financial services sector. That's the economy we've become. Finance and insurance have, has skyrocketed, right? And it's just, um, it's, we've effectively become a financial casino. And then Australian goods versus services economy. In this next one, you see the two, the two things combined, the, the, the goods economy going down and the, the, um, uh, the financial economy, services economy going up. And then I just, this is the last one, Australian housing and business credit. And what that shows you is the banks have been driving this process through their lending decisions. All the lending, since, especially since 1989, has gone increasingly into the housing bubble and much less lending has gone into business, which is where our jobs come from, right? The productive side of the economy. Um, and that's all types of business, including the non-productive one, but just much less lending has gone into that, right? Hence the economy that we've got at the moment. Um, and so we're in this position where we now have a health crisis, right? Because we have an underfunded hospital system. We, didn't, we, we, didn't, we don't have, for instance, hospitals in regional areas, Craig, that have intensive care units, yeah. right? All the small hospitals are either strip bare or closed down. We don't have all those. That's why we've got to try and stop people in, with, the, with the pandemic travelling around, etc. Um, and so we have to have this flattening the curve policy to, to protect our hospital system. We're spending $320 billion on this, $130 billion of which is to fund people to stay idle. 
And the question we're raising is what would it take to restart the economy and get people back to work in a safe way? Well, so it would take a few things. You would need an army of screeners and testers, right? People whose job it is to make sure that the people who are moving around are safe and don't have fevers, etc. That's what's working in countries like South Korea. How would you make sure they're all equipped? How would you make sure you've recruited all those people to do it? It'll cost a lot of money. It'll cost billions and billions of dollars. But it'll be a fraction of what we're spending now, right? And the other thing is you need projects to get people into good productive jobs. We're going to talk about more of that now, but I want to play a clip first of Bob Catter, the member for Kennedy, being asked about this on Sky News last week on this question. And look at what Bob has to say these two parts of this interview. All right, we haven't heard about what's in the minds of the Prime Minister or the Treasurer about how we're going to pay back this $320 billion. We don't really have an idea about what needs to be done immediately after restrictions are lifted, but you've got a few ideas, have you? I wrote a history book, and uh, obviously the Great Depression was one of the great failures of the Australian people. We went through the Depression and built absolutely nothing. I mean, France, Britain... Germany, United States, Japan, they went on massive works programs, public works programs. And um, that was particularly true of the United States. They built the Tennessee Valley Authority projects, which produces more electricity free and forever than we produced in the whole of Australia at the time. Um, that was through their hydro schemes. They built, widened and deepened the Mississippi River so they had a thousand kilometre deep seaway right into the heart of America. They built the biggest dam built in history of the world on the Colorado River. And they started off the agricultural production in uh, um, California, which is now the biggest agricultural producing state on earth. And it's the driest state on earth. Its average rainfall is seven, seven inches. Um, they did all these wonderful things. We did nothing in Australia. Now, we've got exactly the same situation now. You have a depression. Whatever you do now, you have a depression. Now, when you have a depression, everyone in the world that knows anything about economics knows you launch public works programs. Now, you can either have uh, um, um, make money projects or absorb money projects. Now, football stadium, and I love rugby league. I live for rugby league. You build a football stadium that absorbs money. Mm. Forever. Never makes money. Mm. You build a ring road around Brisbane, it might be terrific for people living in Brisbane, Sydney or Melbourne, but it doesn't make you any money. You build a rail line into the Galilee coal fields and you make a squillion dollars a year out of it. Not to mention you dams. A, a power line to take electricity, livable electricity, to the mining areas in the mineral northwest mineral province, you'll get a hundred mines to come on stream. But most of all, in the wettest area on Earth, North Queensland, if it's a separate country, would be the wettest country on Earth. Mm. But a wet only comes for two or three months a year. Obviously, you hold a little bit of it back, send it into inland, Australia, and you convert the whole nature of this country. Okay, that, and that, what was that, a waste I, I, I understand like what you're saying. Will become Productive. I understand what you're saying. Doctor, so right. you're talking dams, rail, big projects, get it started. But when it comes to infrastructure, we've got a bad track record of borrowing a whole heap of money and 
it costs us a lot. Now that we've spent $320 billion, can we afford <coughs> to spend more taxpayers' money on these big projects, or do we come up with better ways to raise and fund infrastructure? No, you are left no alternatives now but to go into public works programs. Not in the history of the world. Marcus Aurelius said, I realised that when I started major building programs, I overcame the Great Depression that our people suffered. He didn't mean in an economic sense, he meant in a psychological sense. Mm. But it was just as true with Marcus Aurelius as it was with Franklin Roosevelt in the Great Depression, as it is now in Australia. And when you say we've gone into $300 billion worth of debt, that is debt that you'll never earn any money out of. It's dead. It's gone. Mm. Forget about it, right? What we're asking for is the expenditure of seven or eight thousand million, and we will give you back thirty thousand million a year. Mm. We have shovel-ready projects: the rail line at Galilee, the Hellsgate Dam, which starts off the Great Bradfield scheme, the the uh, Copper Stream power line, which will open up all those mines in inland Queensland. I could go on and talk about our silicon deposits, and we should be the world's biggest fertiliser-producing country with the I-Pi-Pi Canal. My black fellow mates up there call it the I-Pi-Pi, the Morning Light Canal. Um, you we can need do to all get into the wonderful air. things, but if you don't do it, you're going to go broke. Well, you, you if get... you don't do it, you're going to go broke. You've got to get into the ear of both the Treasurer and the Prime Minister. I hope you're planning to do that in the next few months. Um, I'm from business background. No disrespect to them, but they're not. And, uh, and I have been in a government that created out of nothing the aluminium industry, the coal industry, and the great dams and agricultural development of Australia, um, along with Snowy Mountains. But it is there waiting. It's shuffle ready. Okay. Ready to go. We're contagion free. Let's All right. Do it. All right, let's take a quick break and we'll resume this afterwards. Welcome back to the Citizens Report. Australia needs a reconstruction finance corporation to build out of the depression. So before the break, we played Bob Catter's interview where Bob said we need public works. Now, Bob Catter has adopted the Citizens Party's policy of repurposing the Clean Energy Finance Corporation in order to be a national investment bank to fund this sort of thing. We have put up the required changes that would need to be made to the CEFC. One, You've got to expand its powers beyond clean energy. However, for the, Brad, the project called the Bradfield Scheme in North Queensland, which is to bring water down south, it's also a hydroelectric scheme. They don't even need that change. They could do that straight away. You need the Commonwealth Bank government, sorry, to, to guarantee the, the debts of the CEFC so it could borrow money for extra capital, right, $40 billion. That can become the basis for $500 billion in lending. And you need to revise its investment mandate to allow it to actually borrow money from things like Australian superannuation funds, right? You do those changes, you could turn this existing, the only existing public credit institution we've got in Australia into a proper national investment bank. That's what we're saying, and this is the times that demand it. So, Craig, the principle here is to adapt the existing institutions for the crisis, and the precedent for that is what Franklin Roosevelt did in 1933 with the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. Yeah. You've looked into that in detail. How do yeah. you do it? Well, Rob, it's a really important principle here, and what people don't realise is that you can't trust the private banks. If, you, if you've got a government, liberal government, if they're going to trust the private banking system, nothing's going to happen. Yep. And I'll say something a bit shocking here. Debt, you should never be afraid of debt. You have to be afraid of the private banking system with debt, 
because they're going to use it to screw you, as we've seen with the Royal Commission and so forth. But debt is not a problem if, as Bob Catter says, it's spent in the right way. It'll make you money. And this is where the Royal fin uh, Reconstruction Finance Corporation was, was very, very important for, for Roosevelt because he didn't have to worry about the private banking system and he didn't have to worry about the Congress. He could use a vehicle that already existed. It was established by Hoover in 32, in February of 1932, in order to deal with a massive banking crisis. I mean, 24,500 banks at that particular time, of which 5,000 were actually in suspension. Now, from 1921 to 1932, 10,000 banks in the United States went broke because they stopped the lending. They, they, they didn't have any uh, capacity to keep yeah. themselves going. And so what happened was... Um, when Roosevelt came in, he changed the law a little bit for the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. Instead of requiring premium assets to be loaned to the, uh, uh, to be taken by the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, he said, oh, okay, we can issue pre preferred stock. So what he did is he recapitalised the banks with the guarantee of the government. And he did this using an institution that was established with just $500 million worth of guarantees by the US Treasury which could loan that out up to you know, 10 times at, at, at a minimum. At the end, they were, that Reconstruction Finance Corporation was lending something like five, uh, $50 billion under Jesse Jones, their chairman, yep. to all manner of different productive enterprises, exactly what Bob Catter... Well, they, Bob referenced some of those things like the Tennessee Valley Authority, the, the expanding of the, or the deepening of the, of the Mississippi River, etc. Those were the big projects, but a lot of little ones as well. Yeah. Yeah, funding sewerage, you know, right down to the local local government level to put people back into work, Robbie. And, you know, it, it looked after the the, um, the people with mortgages. He kept people in their homes to the homeowners and loan corporation. It funded agriculture. I was having a, a, a bit of a chuckle when I was looking at this. You know, it was actually funding, distiller, funding distilleries for a while there, you know, because there was a surplus of grapes. So it was funding the production of liquor until there was a... Um, a dispute on that, and they stopped doing that. <laughs> but I mean, they funded cotton, corn, wheat, sheep, mohair, pecans, rubber production. You name it. Particularly during the war, because the Reconstruction Finance Corporation was repurposed for the war, and it basically became the fun funding mechanism, again without the private banks, yep. to completely transform the U.S. economy into a, into a, uh, having the capacity to produce what was necessary to prosecute the war. And, and some of those projects, Craig, like the Tennessee Valley Authority, they just the, the projects weren't just, oh, what can we do to make jobs? They transformed the way America functions. I mean, the Tennessee yeah. Valley Authority tamed that river system, that river basin, um, raised the living standards of a lot of very poor people, for, provided electricity, etc. The you know this is the sort of stuff that doesn't show up in the in the st the GDP statistics per se, right? But but the advance in the living standards of the American public. Um, on the basis of that, these investments was enormous. Well, the basis of the Reconstruction Finance Corporation was, first of all, stabilise the banking system so it becomes useful for the public. Yes, so you don't have people you know, destitute uh, on the streets. Incidentally, Robbie, the banks actually didn't behave themselves during this entire period from 1921 all the way through the 40s. They actually stopped loaning to the public. You say 21, you mean 29, right? Uh, yeah. No, no, all the way through from 1921 oh. to 1940, yeah, right. their banks actually slowly decrease the amount of money that they put into the economy, which is exactly what Chifley yeah, said yeah, back yeah. in the 30s. Yeah. You know, the banks are private institutions. They're only interested in themselves. Yeah. When it comes to the common good, forget it. That's where the government has to step in. Yeah. And I'll say a lot more about the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, uh, Robbie, as we go along, because this is the model yeah. for, for us to adopt.
So what we're saying is the CEFC, based, you know, knowing that through the RFC you can have that precedent, the CEFC could do that sort of thing today. Absolutely. So we've put out a release about this with, and we're, do, we're doing more with detail. We're encouraging people, while you're at home, email our releases onto your members of parliament, call them up, see your answers the phone and say, you've got to read that. Parliament will be resuming in May. Concrete proposals will be put forward then that we're involved in working with Bob Catteron. So this is going to be a very important fight going forward. So, Craig, thanks for joining us. You're welcome, Rob. Thanks for tuning in. Tune in next week for more.